John chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it says this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep, the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Years ago, before you know, we moved here to Maui, um, before we lived in Arizona, I used to teach at a Bible college in California. And there at the Bible college, I wouldn't only teach classes, but I was also what they called the dean of men. And part of my ministry as the dean of men was I was the disciplinarian. I was the hammer. So with that, I mean, I often tell people that, like, I used to be the disciplinarian at a Bible college. And people would often respond, do you need to have a disciplinarian at a Bible college? Like, aren't they a bunch of, like, Christians that have come to, like, study the Bible? And yeah, you would like to assume that, but I'm telling you, they kept me busy. Um, oh, man. So a lot of these guys, it was their first time away from mom and dad. Immature, unexperienced, undisciplined, and wild. And kind of dumb. But, you know, they, they would grow. Now, sure, there were times where there was things that I had to deal with that was just plain old bad. Like, there was a time where, and I wouldn't have even believed it, but I had to dismiss a guy who was an actual Satan worshiper who had idols under his bed and was making, like, weird sacrifices. It was really weird. Now, everybody, like, you'd think, don't you think you'd pick up on a guy that's like a full-on Satan worshiper at a Bible college? Well, let me tell you his backstory. He was from Nepal. So right away we thought, oh, it's just a cultural difference. And there was a missionary, a really kind-hearted missionary that ended up having a relationship with this guy there in Nepal. And this guy really put on a good show for this Christian missionary. This Christian missionary thought, man, this guy's really, he's really coming along. This guy might be the future of Christian missions in this village here in Nepal. And so the Christian missionary himself foot the bill for this young man from Nepal to fly from Nepal, all the visa stuff, and enroll in a Bible college in California. Now this young man's thinking, I'm going to America. I'm going to California. This is going to be awesome. And I'll just bring my satanic idols with me on the way. Uh, I had to dismiss this guy. It was wild. I would have never expected that at a Bible college. There were things that were absolutely nasty. Kids that were getting themselves into very disgusting and vile things. And I would have to dismiss them for that. I had one kid who I had to dismiss from Bible college because he was stealing laptops. And then he was selling the laptops that he would steal to finance a missions trip. Okay, dude, let me tell you about how God wants you to go on the mission field, right? Probably not that way. But no, I had to send this kid home. There were kids where I would have to be extreme. 
I would show up at their dorm with my, they gave me a golf cart, so I'd get to drive around. I'd show up at their dorm room. I'd be like, pack your bags right now. I'm staying here until they're all packed. I'd make him pack his bags. I would load him up on the golf cart, and I would drive him to the gate and leave him there. How am I supposed to get home? I don't know. That's on you. We didn't ask you to come to our school. You asked us to come to our school. You agreed to the rules. You agreed to the terms. The terms were very basic. And yet, you've gone on and done your own thing. Even after warning, you repeat. So you're deciding to not be here anymore. I'm not telling you you have to leave. You just know what the rules are, and you've made the decision that you'd rather do your thing than our thing. So, bye. And uh, it had to happen. Um, And then I'd have parents that would be like, how dare you tell me that my kid is bad? Well, ma'am, your kid is bad. Um, No, it's you. You're the problem. I'm sorry that you feel that way, but no, we've pretty much caught him red-handed. And uh, we'd have to send him home. So there were some times that it was just out and out illegal. It was out and out like vile and wicked. It was out and out just wrong. And uh, they would have to go home. But there was also a a fair share of just plain stupid stuff. Okay? Um, Kids that, like I said, it's their first time away from mom and dad. And they'd get into all kinds of trouble. And the reason why they would end up in trouble... It wasn't that the thing that they were doing was bad. It was in and of itself. It was more that the time that they were doing it or the place that they were doing it or how they were doing it was bad. Like, for instance, starting a boxing club is not bad. But starting a boxing club in a very small dorm room where you pack it in and kids are getting thrown through the walls, that's bad. And I had to be the one that's responsible for the holes in the walls. That's bad. Okay? Go do it outside. Don't do it in your dorm room. Uh, Or riding a bodyboard. Riding a bodyboard is not bad, but riding a bodyboard down the stairs and through the wall, that's bad. Or cutting your roommate's hair, that's not bad. But doing it while he's asleep and not knowing about it, that's bad. These are the things that were like, it's not the thing itself, but it's like where it was happening or when it was happening or how it was happening. And the where, when, and how had to have some adjustment. And then the thing could go on and it could go on in a good way. Now, the reason I bring that up is because what we're finding here as we begin John chapter 2, starting there in verse 13 through 15, is that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem there at the time of the Passover. As he enters into Jerusalem, into the temple, he finds merchants who are selling sheep and oxen and doves. And let me tell you, that kind of merchant and that kind of merchandise isn't bad. It's actually a very important aspect of of, um, trade, and I'll explain that here in a minute. But the thing itself isn't bad. He finds money changers, those that were taking currency from foreign lands and from distant parts of Israel and exchanging them to a currency that was acceptable in that location. That was a very important um, ministry or, or job, I should say, as well. That job wasn't bad. It was actually necessary, and I'll explain that soon as well. But this morning we find Jesus, and he's entering into Jerusalem, there at the time of the Passover, 
And Jerusalem would be buzzing, especially at the time of the Passover. It would just be this town. It was already a big city, but it was one of three feasts of the Jews that they would specifically go to Jerusalem wherever they lived. If they lived in any part of Israel or anywhere beyond Israel and they were Jewish, they would go on pilgrimage and come up to Jerusalem. It tells us in Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was like the, the long form of the Feast of Passover. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the Feast of Weeks, uh, Feast of uh, Pentecost, we know that one as, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So these three times a year, they would all come up to Jerusalem to celebrate. So that means not just the people that lived in Jerusalem, but everybody else was coming too. And here we are at Passover. Now, Passover was one of the big ones. They would try hard to make it for Passover. Now, the law does give, um, you know, allowance. Like if for one reason or another, they couldn't make it, like what they would do. But, you know, it was... It was an honorable thing for them to be able to make the pilgrimage if they could. Even to this day, when the Jews celebrate their Passover dinner and they have their Seder, at the end of it all, no matter where they're at, it's customary for them to to end their feast by saying, next year in Jerusalem. Because it's their longing. It's, It's just part of the custom. So as Jesus arrives, he finds the city packed, people from all over celebrating the Passover. Now, if you were to say, okay, remember, there's three feasts in the year that they would all show up. Now, not Jerusalem, or not Pent, or not, <laughs> not Passover, but let's use Pentecost as an example of where people would come from. Because you have a mention of what happened at Pentecost in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So here's people that were supposed to go up one of the three pilgrimage feasts, not supposed to show up empty-handed, and they're coming from a long ways away. So faithful Jews coming to worship from all over. And let's say you were traveling from like Egypt, or let's say you were traveling from Arabia and you were, gonna, you were a faithful Jew and you're coming to make a sacrifice and you're not supposed to show up empty-handed. So what are you going to do? Well, I got my lamb. I'm going to walk this lamb hundreds of miles across a rugged wilderness and show up in Jerusalem and then try to offer that thing. Except the law of God wouldn't allow you to offer any animal that had blemish. So if, you're, if your animal got bloody feet from walking over sharp rocks, hey, you can't offer that one. It's, it, it has blemish. You know, it has spot. If your animal got all caught up, cut up walking through brush, you couldn't offer that animal. 
You couldn't take that animal for those hundreds of miles and get them there to Jerusalem and then have the priests inspect them and say, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect, flawless animal fit for sacrifice. And so if you were coming from a long ways away, you would realize, you know what? I don't need to bring an animal. I can just buy one while I'm there, save the animal the journey, and then sacrifice one that's fresh from Jerusalem. It makes sense. I mean, you see it. We see it here in Maui all the time, right? People fly to Hawaii, and the first stop that they make is Costco, because they, don't, they know that they don't need to bring a lawn chair. They can just buy one. They don't need to bring snorkel gear. They can just buy it. They can buy their Wavestorm surfboard or their boogie board or their umbrella or whatever they're going to buy. They buy their groceries. They don't bring their groceries, right? Wouldn't that be weird if they're like, oh, you know what? I should bring my groceries and I should bring, they seem to buy a lot of wine over there. Bring my wine and uh, I should bring my surfboards and my, my chairs and all, like, it would be a caravan, and you'd have to pay a fortune in luggage fees. Nah, no need to bring it. I'll just buy it when I get there. And that's what people do. Well, similar, but here it's directly connected to sacrifice, not necessarily to fun in the sun. So, this job of selling animals that were specifically for worship, it's a really important job. It was actually, it, was, it wasn't just a job, it was a service. Because you were making it so that these guys who came to worship could have something to worship and, or something to offer to the Lord. It was an important, um, it was an uh, important uh, trade. <laughs> I don't know what that word is. I'm like, what's the word I'm looking for? Just drawing a blank. Sorry about that. On top of that, the money changers. Here they are, are getting ready to have, offer sacrifice at the temple. And these guys are coming from distant lands that on their money, it was not uncommon for them to have the images of pagan deities on them, the images of foreign leaders who were um, worshipped as if they were gods. And so to present these images of false gods in the house of the true God was viewed as like an insult. So they're like, no, no, we can't, we, we can't offer, we can't present that in the house of God. We're not going to bring these images of false deities into the house of God. And so then there'd be guys who would set up and be like, well, let's do an exchange. Exchange it for temple shekel. It's actually the currency that we accept here. And also, there's no, you know, you wouldn't know the purity of the metals that were of the coin or, you know, the weight. So that's what the money changers would do. So it was an important function. Something that they did to be able to, you know, translate it into currency that was accepted there that they could, you know, then use to buy their sacrifices, and be able to make their offerings to the Lord. Now, of course, eventually there became price gouging in these animals to be sacrificed before the Lord. People would bring perfectly good animals from nearby and the priests would reject them and say, no, but you have to buy an animal that's already been approved. We have some over here. 
pretty expensive and people would be stuck and they'd have to buy. So yeah, there was fraud that happened. There was fraud that would happen in the, with the money changers uh, it, with like an inflated exchange rate. There's plenty of that. But those aren't the issues that Jesus is addressing here in John chapter 2. He does address that later because he cleanses the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, and then once there during the Passion Week after Palm Sunday, and he cleanses the temple again. In Passion Week, the issue that he brings up is that you've made it a den of thieves. He brings up this issue of the fraud that's happening there. What's the issue that he brings up here? I simply want to point out to you that as he enters into Jerusalem, verse 14, it says, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And from that, his rebuke was in verse 16, a little sneak peek, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. The point is that it, they find the, the, um, those selling animals, which is a, an important job, an important service. But what is he, where does he find that? He finds that in the temple. The money changers, that was an important service. But where does he find them doing that job? In the temple. And so what would happen is that as you would get near Jerusalem and you would go up to the mountain of the Lord, you would enter into the temple. And the first place that you would enter into inside the temple would be what is known as the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, if you weren't Jewish born, if you were proselyte to the Jewish faith, you could only go into the court of the Gentiles. After that, if you were Jewish, you could go into the next level, which would be they would have the court of the men and they'd have the court of the women. And then after that, then you could, the priests, they had that, the next place where they could get into the, the temple proper, the, the holy place. And then behind that, the holy of holies, they were allowed to get into that inner area. But on the Temple Mount, the very first place that you go to is the court of the Gentiles. They could, Gentiles couldn't go into these inner areas. If they wanted to worship the true and living God, they could only go so far. And so imagine, here you are, you're an Egyptian, and you've just come to the knowledge of the true and living God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, not like these weird, you know, um, pantheon of gods, not some god of the underworld and, you know, not some other weird god. You're, 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 you know the true and living God, the God of Israel, the I Am. And you've come to worship Him according to what He has said in His Word. And you're excited. You're like, I've never done this before. I don't know what this is going to be like, but I'm just so excited because now I know the truth and I want to worship the Lord. And you come up at one of these feasts. You come up at the feast of the Passover and you're entering in. You're like, how do I do this? What do I do? And the Jews that are there are like, well, you're a Gentile, right? Yeah. Okay, so you can cross this gate and you can't go any further. 
okay, cool, then I, I guess I'm here. And then, so what do I do now? Now you, this is where you pray and you worship. This is where you get to do it. Okay, cool. Unfortunately, we've kind of set up shop here with the animal exchange. And uh, we're over here selling, changing money too. So you kind of have to share your sanctuary with like the shopping mall, okay? And I don't know, like when you go to the Middle East, there's just something in the way that they do their sale, tra- their, their, their transactions. They don't just give you a price. There's no price tag. So you go, how much is this? And the guy that's selling it will just start at a price. Now that's not the real price. But that's to get you to counter offer. And then you counter offer, and then it's like, okay, game on. And then the negotiations happen until you finally agree at the price. And then once the price is agreed to, then, you know, everybody has fun. The, the, the merchant makes his money. The, the, the purchaser, like they, they get their product, and everybody's happy. Well, it's a kind of a sport. They get very demonstrative at it. I mean, they're all about it. When we were, when we were in South Africa, we had a guy with us who was from Egypt, and, and he was starting to bargain with the guys down there and haggle. And he was just like, he kept his hand in his pocket like this. And it was getting louder and louder and louder. And he talks the guy down, down, down. Next thing you know, like we're walking away. <laughs> like, wow, you got it for that cheap? But it's just because it's part of the game. It's part of the culture. And it's loud. And it's fun. It's exciting. You get to try to see what kind of a deal you get. And they love it. It was an insult to just like, if you go, how much is this? Oh, it's that much. Okay, here's your money. You know, like you read about it with the days of Abraham when Sarah died and he wanted to purchase the field and he wanted to, to bury her. And then he asked him, how much do you want for it? And the guy told him and he just like gave him the money. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, like where's, the, where's the bargaining? No, I don't have time for that. There you go. It's like an insult to just accept the first price. Well, here's these worshipers. They want to worship the Lord. And where do they got to worship? Well, they have to share the space inside the temple with this buzzing, loud marketplace where animals are being sold, where money's being exchanged. It's not the selling of animals that's the problem. It's not the exchange of money that's the problem. It wasn't the what. It's the where where it was, and who it was affecting. That's the place for the Gentiles to worship. God loves the Gentiles. He wanted the Gentiles to come. He wanted the Gentiles to know him. But yet in the Jewish mind, oh, those Gentiles, they don't really matter. We could just use their area for this instead. So therefore, we pick it up in verse 15 down to verse 17. It says, and when he had made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. If you can't imagine Jesus getting mad, Getting angry here? If you can't imagine an angry Jesus, then I don't know if you really understand love. Let me repeat that. 
If you can't imagine, if you don't have room for an angry Jesus, then you might not understand love. And the reason I say that is because love isn't just some happy feeling that goes along with whatever. Oh, I love you. I love you, so you just do what you want. Do whatever. I love you. Like, yeah, you're going to continue to have that person as the object of your love, but it doesn't mean that you're just going to go along with whatever. Listen, if you love your kids, you will be fierce in the way that you protect them. We hear that like, don't mess with mama bear. And you see that. If you love your wife, and yet she comes home and she's like, I just want you to know that like, I've been prostituting myself on weekends just to make a little extra money. Um, and you better not be upset with that because you love me, right? No, I, like, if you love your wife, you're not going to share her with what's destroying her. If your husband comes home and's like, guess what, honey? I'm a heroin addict. And you're like, that's nice, babe. No, not in my house, not my husband, and not, like, not just for you because I care about you, but the example that you're setting for our children. I love you, and over my dead body will I allow you to continue in this destructive behavior. Because that's the, that's the reality of love. Love can boil, can't it? It can boil. If you're just like, whatever. That's not love. You know what that is? That's apathy. Numbness is not love. Just whatever. Now, on a flip side, let me just go back to that. If you love your kids, you will be fierce on how you protect them. Side note, your children are being hunted today by the very technology that you allow them to have. Predators are hunting your children at a rate that you don't even want to believe. The, the organization that sent Leslie and I to the Middle East to help bring those refugees out of Afghanistan, it's called the National Child Protections Task Force. And what they do is they set up cyber tools, fake Instagram accounts, posing as if they are children, and within minutes of having a new account, they are already being targeted by pedophiles. Within minutes, they post, and boom, here they come with these little direct messages. Hey, how's it going? And just like people posing as people they're not even. And so these guys, they set up these sting operations to bust these pedophiles and bring them to justice, and I'm thankful for organizations like that. But it's not like within weeks. It's not like, oh, I wonder if. It's like as soon as it's out there, there are creepy people out there that are hunting your children. And yet we're like, but I don't want to be viewed as being like the overbearing parent. Like, okay, but let me tell you, once their innocence is gone, it's gone. They're not getting that back. Your children are precious, so bring out that mama bear. Don't worry about like, oh, they're going to be mad at me. How much, more, how much mad, more mad will you be at yourself when you find out that they've run off, been kidnapped, and they're being trafficked somewhere? That's the reality of what's happening in our country. I'm telling you, my friends are busting these guys every day. And uh, they've actually invited us to get involved sometimes. So we might be doing some stuff like in the Dominican Republic one day. 
if you ever want to get a little crazy and bust some pedophiles. But um, that'll be another thing, okay? You're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get them. <laughs> Those monsters. Well, look, there's monsters that are targeting your children. And so, you know what? Like, for love's sake, sometimes you need to be a little bit more uh, defensive on what you allow. You wouldn't hook up a sewer line into your kid's bedroom just to, like, free flow. No way. Because you care about your kid's bedroom. You care about your kid's health, their safety. And in a similar way, and all the kids are like, Mom, does this mean you're going to start monitoring all my social media? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, kids. Welcome to church. <laughs> no, no. No. But I'm just telling you, it's real out there. It is real, and it is creepy. And so, little side note, but let me, let me get this. Let me get back. If you love your family, you'll defend them. And here we see Jesus. And you know what? You know what he's basically saying when he makes that whip? Not in my house. Not in my house. Because that's what it says. Zeal for his father's house has eaten him up. Not in this house. No, you're not going to have where like one part of the family is viewing the other part of the family as so insignificant that that family has to share their room with the animals that are getting sold. Not in my house. Like God loves these people and he wants them to come. So not in my, this behavior does not belong in my house. And he makes these whips and he drives them out. The word zeal, it means to be brought to a boil. And I'm sure that you've like, made your spaghetti or your macaroni and cheese or, or whatever it is. You get your water and you put it in there in the pot and you turn it on and you kind of watch it and a little bit, a little bit of steam kind of blows up, a wispy steam. And then all of a sudden you get the little bubbles on the outside. The little bubbles on the outside, that's not a boil. Not even, not even a simmer really. And then all of a sudden you get the little bubbles on the bottom. That's more of a simmer. But then all of a sudden it crosses that line and then it's just like, like whatever that is, that stage, that thing, you know what they call that? They call that a boil. And it's just like moving, right? It's, it's crazy going on in there. There's like no order. It's just that word boil. Um, let me just say it would be awesome to see people a little more zealous for the Lord these days? Like people are boiling over all kinds of stuff. But a little more zealous for God, for the things of God. Like Jehu, when he was purging the land of idolatry, it says in 2 Kings 10, 16, and he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they made, um, so they made him ride in his chariot. Zeal has to do with fire. And fire can be both very good and it can also be very destructive. Zeal can be that fire that brings you to a boil for the things of God or it can be that fire that pushes you to fulfill your own wicked desires. You can cloak your selfish desires even with spirituality and you can be really boiling about that. Um... James 3.14 says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, 
Do not boast and lie against the truth. This word right here, envy, that's that same word as zeal. It comes up in our English word. So, there's, so you have the word zeal. And if you took out the Z and you put a J there, Jill? Jill. Zeal and Jill. But if you put the O-C at the end of zealousy, zealous, you put the O-U-S at the end of the Jill, jealous, zealous, jealous, it's the same word. It's just that there's a different fire under it. What's the fire that's under you? What's that fire that's bringing you to a boil? What gets you moving today? What, what like really gets you going? Here we have Jesus. And the fire under him is the zeal for his father's house. A house that was to be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56 verse 7. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. Speaking of the Gentiles. People from, who are from all over the world, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. That's their house to worship the Lord. God cares about all nations. He cares about the Gentiles. But here we find the Jews disregarding an entire group of people just so they can use that space for a little bit of profit. And God took that personal. You see, the zeal for his father's house had consumed him, and he drove them out with a whip of cords. Now, a whip of cords, it's not a very threatening weapon, right? I mean, if it was, say, it's like little bits of leather or whatever that he found around, some people think that it might have been just like um, rushes of weeds or of reeds, you know, that, you know, because it could translate either way. Might have even, I mean, like, like, so say he found a mop head, you know, like, it's not super threatening, right? It's not like you're going to go down to the shopping mall and empty out the mall, some guy running around with a mop head. Get out of there! You know, like, so there's kind of a miracle here, right? There's something going on here where, like, whatever's going on, like, it was enough to where these guys, they, like, they started to leave. The temple police didn't jump in and break it up. There's something, like, God was at work here. But he said to those, he starts flipping tables and, he lets the animals go. Now, I, I like that because the animals, they can always go and regather those animals. But those that sold the doves, he didn't go and like open their cage and let their doves go. Because once you let the birds go, like you're not going to get those birds back. You've got to start a whole new series of trapping them birds. Like you can go and round, like round up your sheep. Like that's what shepherds do. But the birds, so he's not trying to even cost them money. I like that even there, he respects that, like, okay, I'm not going to lose, have you lose out on your own, like, things that belong to you, just get them out of here. It's a special moment there. You see that it's not that he has an issue with their business, it's where they were conducting their business. Where they were conducting that business, that was supposed to be a holy place, and they had turned it into a place for profit. 
He says, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And the miracle, it worked. It seemed like it had an effect on their conscience. Now let me say something about this, okay? Like, God's not against you making a bunch of money. He's not. Read the book of Proverbs. Gives you all kinds of advice on how to make a bunch of money. There's something blessed about making a bunch of money and using wisdom to do so. What God's against is you somehow figuring out a way to manipulate God's people to make a bunch of money. Hey, wait, wait, wait. This house is supposed to be a holy place. This isn't the, where you get the leverage to fleece God's flock. Like a prosperity, you hear these people that are all like prosperity gospel, like, oh, God wants you to be rich. Well, maybe he does. And you know how he wants you to be rich? By being the best at your workplace that you could possibly be so that your services become so invaluable that you become famous on the area that you live in and work in that everybody wants to come and give you their business and they'll give you their money. Not because you're out here saying, if you give me your money, that way I can drive a Lexus and tell you, you might one day too. No, you've turned God's people into merchandise and God's people are not for merchandise. It's viewing God's people completely wrong. And that's what these guys were doing. So let me say like, prosperity, read the book of Proverbs, it'll teach you how. Go get a good education, go use excellent worth ethic, work super hard, it might take you a long time, save more than you spend and eventually you'll end up in the plus right? It's God's principles. It's not like do a bunch of hocus pocus, you know, get yourself into a frenzy, give the preacher a bunch of money till you're in physical pain and your kids aren't having like proper clothing and all that and do this because, you know, he just doesn't seem like he's hurting anything, but why do I have to hurt? That's not the, that's not the method that God has, okay? So I'm just a little side note. Sorry if I'm, seem like I'm beating something up, but I think it's important here. God's house isn't to be a house of merchandise. Whew. Isn't it great when we can just come together and worship the Lord together? <laughs> Not like, uh-oh, got to worry about pastor. He's going to dig me in for 20 grand or something. Um, make some weird offering today. From there, verse 18 through 21. It says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I like how they equate what Jesus says with scripture there. The Jews saw what he did, and they answered, what sign do you show us? They understood his actions of cleansing the temple to be messianic, and they also knew that when the Messiah comes, he would have signs accompanying his ministry. 
So they ask him, hey, show us a sign. Now that was something they had asked him of often. And when they asked him, when the hard-hearted people asked him for a sign, he always only pointed them to one sign. He would sometimes point it in a different way, but he only pointed them to one sign. Like when they asked in Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want to know a sign? There's coming a day where the Son of Man will be crucified, he will be buried, and he will rise again on the third day. How's that for a sign? He used the story of Jonah to illustrate that there. But here, at this point, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. He's pointing to the same sign. He's just using different language to do it. So do you see that? What is the sign that Jesus wants to draw their attention to? His death, burial, and resurrection. Because that's the gospel. When you read um, 1 Corinthians 15, that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. How he was buried and how he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. His answer here is no exception to that. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. And the Jews were shocked because they're still thinking about the temple mount. They're thinking, wait. We've been working on this for 46 years. They ended up working on it for another 30 after that. And it was such an elaborate building that Herod built that in that day, they would say, if you've never seen Herod's temple, you've never seen a beautiful building in all your life. Like they knew the work that David had put into the temple. They knew the work that Solomon had put into it. And now Herod expanding it, building these massive retaining walls and expanding the, the footing of, of the city. But that wasn't what Jesus was speaking about. He was talking about giving his life for the sins of the people. Now in a way, the day that Jesus died, the temple died. The day that Jesus died, the temple died. The day that Jesus died, remember, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And Hebrews tells us, let us enter in boldly to the holy place through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The day that Jesus died, all the sacrifices that happened at the temple, they all became worthless. Absolutely worthless. Because the once and for all sacrifice for the sin of mankind had taken place when Jesus suffered and died on our place in the cross. And so the sacrifices became useless. That whole temple, the day that Jesus died, it became irrelevant and it died too. And when Jesus rose from the grave, remember he said, it's good for me that I go away, for if I do not go away, the comforter will not come to you, whom my Father sends in my name. When Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people. And by the Spirit, the church was born. 
Now, in speaking of cleansing the temple, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, when I read it in the New King James like that, it's kind of like, oh, it's talking about me. But if you read it in the King James, it doesn't say you. It says, do you not know that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If I was to break that down into like southern vernacular, I could say you when I'm talking to you and you and you and you, or I can say y'all when I'm talking to y'all, right? And what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 3.16 is, do you not know that y'all are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? Like, here's the temple, y'all. You're the temple. Now, there is the reality of the individual. individual you are the temple of the Spirit. He talks about that in First or Second Corinthians. But when you think of all the care that David put into gathering the material for the building of the temple, when you think of all the detail that Solomon put into it, to put it all together, the massive stones for its foundation, the precious wood for the inner walls and the ceiling, all the gold and the silver and the precious stones. The temple was a spectacular accomplishment. But to think that to God, there was coming a day where he was just going to put it all aside, see it as small and insignificant compared to y'all. The church of God. A glorious temple in which the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell. Ephesians 2, 19-22 Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Remember, they would, tr- they would want to come. They could only go to that court of the Gentile and they'd have to share it with a bunch of people bargaining for the price of an animal. But now you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So look at this. A place where the Spirit of God is pleased to dwell. Our unity is precious. Our unity is essential. And our unity is dependent upon the foundation. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And then he adds, we are built on the apostles and prophets. Which means that the ministry of the apostles, the ministry of the prophets, what they have left behind for us, the holy word of God, like we're built on the scripture. We're not just built on some like Eastern impression of Jesus. Like, what do you think? What do you think of Jesus? I think of him in felt with like, it's a fuzzy carpet. And I think like he's doing like a peace sign and a glowing thing on his head. Ooh, spiritual. I think of that picture that was on that one candle that I lit and I listened to like Pink Floyd and I just felt so spiritual. Like, no, like, your concept of Jesus, 
has to be what the foundation that the apostles and prophets have laid down. A biblical concept of Jesus. Okay, so we can't reinvent Christianity just to make it more relevant for us for today. We can't reinvent it in a way where, you know, we don't like those Gentiles. We don't like that people group. So let's put them in with like where we sell cattle and stuff. Let's do that instead. No, like God cares for all people. He loves all people. And even to the point where like, look, that attitude, not in my house. And there needs to be some cleansing of the temple where we can recognize the heart of God for all people. And whatever the obstacles that we're putting in the way that are unnecessary, then we need to move them out. Take the money changing, take it outside of the temple. Take the selling of all those animals, take them outside of the temple. Like, you can still do them, just they don't belong in here. Not in this place. This is a holy place. What happens here is holy. But also, the amazing part, the Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit want to dwell? I'll give you a hint. In, according to this verse, it's not, the Holy Spirit doesn't want to go dwelling in those who try to go it all alone. The Holy Spirit, I'm going to go and buy a little shack down in Calpo. Be all by myself. Because I'm so godly until people get involved. And then, man, those people, they are so wicked. They make, they, they make me wicked. No, 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 no. The wickedness is in you. It's just you're seeing it in the reactions on how you deal with people. It's not with those who think that they're too spiritual to commit themselves to a flawed group of people. And we are a flawed group of people. Paul tells us in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians that the joining together of the local church, that in that union, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you're getting farther from the church, you're getting farther from God. Or let me say it in reverse. If you're getting closer to God, the closer that He will lead you to His people, even though they're flawed. It's not God's intention for you to do this thing, this life, alone. It's, it's God's design that you yoke yourselves with other believers, formally assembled, people that are going to hold you accountable. They're not going to let you get away with like, the attitudes or the actions. And be like, hey, like, you shouldn't be talking like that, bro. Like, hey, I, I understand what it's like to get frustrated, but man, like the way that you're acting out like that, it, it, it doesn't... It doesn't represent the Lord well. Like, we do that all the time in our house, right, Lucy? You know, one person does something wrong, and then we want to do wrong back, and then somebody will quote the verse, do not repay evil for evil. <sighs> like, my kids have to tell me that sometimes, right? <laughs> like, it's just, thank you for holding me accountable. That's what, like, the body of Christ does, right? It's beautiful. And right here you might say, he's just preaching church. But no, I'm preaching the Bible. And the Bible says, like Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So we can't make his house a house of merchandise, 
We can't make his house a place where we decide to neglect certain groups of people. Like, I don't like the children. Let's take their, their like, room and let's make it a closet where we store all of our junk. Uh, no. Like, we can't just make it like that. We can't take the prayer closet and turn it into the junk closet. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. His house is for all people, and we seek him together. 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? To Peter, it was urgent to live right because judgment was about to begin. Like he says in 1 Peter 4.5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so in that, like, look, be ready. He's ready. He's ready to, to, to judge the living and the dead. So it's not time for us to be playing around with, like, showing our favorites or excluding people or setting up distractions or turning his house into a place of merchandise or whatever else that we decide that we're going to turn it into that takes us further and further away from him. This is a holy place. It's a holy family. And he adds that it begins at the house of God, or what we see here from Jesus. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. In closing, I just want to read 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. He knew. His ministry wasn't dependent on, on people. But the beauty is, is that his ministry was certainly two people. All people. He loved people. And what really made him mad was when there was these obstacles that were built up through merchant, seeing people as merchandise that kept people away from drawing near to the Lord. The fire under him was this place where God's people came together, where God was worshipped. And I just want to encourage you that let the Lord be that fire under you as well. It would be good for us if we all had a little bit more zeal for the things of God, a little more passion for the things of the Lord, we took the things of God a little more serious.